This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. Several weeks after Hurricane Ian made landfall, a team of faculty and student researchers from Florida Gulf Coast University's Water School joined a week-long offshore research trip to collect water samples and survey seabeds to better understand the storm's ecological impact. The team joined researchers from the Florida Institute of Oceanography and the Sanibel Captiva Conservation Foundation aboard FIO's 78-foot W.T. Hogarth research vessel. I spoke with two of the FGCU researchers about this trip on Friday. Let's hear that conversation now. Dr. James Douglas is an associate professor of marine science in the Department of Marine and Earth Sciences at Florida Gulf Coast University. Dr. Douglas, welcome to the show. Thanks. And Cole Tillman is a graduate student at the Water School at FGCU. Cole, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. So for starters, Dr. Douglas, can you just give us an update on the Vester Research Station? I know that kind of is a preface to what we're talking about today, but, you know, Ian came through and tell us what, what is the latest on Vester. Well, the station really got walloped by the hurricane. The storm surge basically cleaned out the whole bottom floor, and the top floor has lost power and AC, so there's going to have to be a lot of major surgery on the offices uh, and laboratories upstairs, too. So uh, we're totally crippled at the moment uh, at, at Vester. The one saving grace is that our boats, for the most part, were not damaged. So once the station is fixed, we'll, we will be able to get back into the water. We've been in the water a little bit, but... As far as uh, research activities and classes at that station, we're, we're down for now. Understood. So how long have you been at FGCU and just sort of you know, briefly describe your, your work and your focus? I've been at FGCU since 2012, and they brought me on to be a seagrass expert because I'd done a lot of research on underwater plants, seagrasses, and I've branched out a little bit into other sea bottom habitats like oyster reefs, and now I'm looking at offshore hard bottom environments with corals and sponges. Uh, basically, any kind of marine life on the bottom is really interesting to me. Understood. And Cole, so tell us, you know, you've been at FGCU for how long? Uh, going on about five years now. Okay. And you're working on your master's now? Yes, I am. What yeah. is your uh, your area of study and focus, and what are your hopes for what to do with that? So overarching would be benthic ecology. So benthic meaning bottom, kind of looking at uh, what's out there on the southwest Florida shelf, different habitats, what inhabits those, what organisms inhabit those those habitats. And yeah, like, like we talked about earlier, I mean, there's not one specific thing that I want to do. I, I want to learn more about what it takes to actually look into these environments, determine how humans are infecting, affecting these environments and sort of how to turn that into numbers instead of just observational um, saying, oh, this looks this way, but how do you turn that into numbers and actually make something out of it? Understood. Yeah. So uh, we've got you guys in here today because you were on the, the Hogarth, is that how you say it? Right. Uh, for this research um, um, trip, uh, how did this all come together? What's the origin story of you, know, you guys all coming together to do that? Well, there are a lot of scientists that were studying life in the area before the hurricane. So we were looking at the um, sea bottom habitats on what Cole called the southwest Florida shelf. So that's the area offshore of Lee and Collier County. And obviously that work was interrupted by the storm, but we were very curious to see how things in our study areas had changed after the storm. And one of my co-investigators, Dr. Puspa Adhikari here at, at the university, was able to get us time on this ship, the Hogarth, to take us out to the sites that we otherwise wouldn't have been able to access after the storm. So what we normally do from small boats uh, on day trips, we did in one big week of research. 
So um, Sandoval Captiva Conservation Foundation was also on board, and so they had some sites. So explain, I was trying to figure out if, if the sites that you visited were just the sites you normally visit, or was the scope broader than that? We teamed up, so we visited not only the eight sites that we do our seabed surveys at, but a whole bunch of other sites that uh, we have been looking at water quality at for other projects. And so the Sanibel Captiva Conservation Foundation is looking at a lot of sites for red tide and other uh, indicators of health of the Gulf, and some other researchers at FGCU, like Mike Parsons, are also looking at red tide and other offshore processes. So we had a long list of sites to visit. We even visited some artificial reef sites placed by Lee and Collier County to see how those were doing. So before we get to the, the research and the data you collected, just talk briefly, um, you know, what are the environmental concerns after a major event like this? Like, what are the things that you're concerned about? Is it pollution? Is it nutrients from land? Is it other stuff from land? Is it damage to, you know, like physical damage to, to the bottom of the ocean? You know, what, what are the things that you're concerned about? It's all of the above. So you mentioned physical damage to the seabed, and that's a big deal on the southwest Florida shelf where the environment is sort of a shallow dusting of sand on top of limestone. And whether a habitat is what we call hard bottom or bare sand and mud uh, is dependent on just a few centimeters of sand covering it or not. Um, and so there's sort of a shifting environment where you could have a reef of exposed limestone for years, and then an event like this comes through and it's uh, sand dunes with, uh, without any of the life that had been attached to the bottom. Uh, so the environment really got shuffled by the physical disturbance of the storm, and a lot of the organisms were swept away. We do photographic surveys down there, and we saw that the physical disturbance was unmistakable. So uh, I'm going to let you describe, Cole, what was the W.T. Hogarth like? Have you ever been on it before? Just describe it to our listeners because it looks like a pretty interesting vessel to be on. Yeah, so I'd, I'd been on it one time before, but for more of a half-day cruise. So this definitely was more of an in-depth experience. But um, when you first pull up to it, it, it's almost shaped like a, like a tugboat. Yeah. That's the first thought I had when I saw it. Um, it's compact. It's very compact, yeah. <laughs> um, and they definitely make use of every inch of that boat, I will say. Um, the crew is awesome. And really just being out on a boat that size, which maybe by some standards wasn't as big. It's 78 foot, right? I, I don't know the exact number, I honestly. I think that's what the, um, the website from FIU said, or FIO said. Okay. Um, but yeah, definitely one of the bigger ships that I've been on. And, uh, you know, I know it's like a, it's like a coastal cruiser, but, uh, it was just cool kind of going offshore and, and in a place that usually with the boats we take out, which are in the 22 to 25 foot range would be absolutely terrible to be out on those boats. It was kind of just really smooth sailing for, for most days. There was one night where it was really rocky and there was glass breaking and stuff like that, but you know, it handled the waves really well. And, we, we went to almost uh, 70 miles offshore at one point, hmm. and uh, being out there, it was uh, just, like, really cool seeing the stars um, and just everyone kind of working together to get all this data. It was a great experience. For listeners, if you go to our website, you can see a picture of the vessel. Um, uh, Dr. Douglas, how many people were on it, and how many of them were FGCU, you know, associated? 
Well, there were 15 of us living on the boat for a week. So five of those were the captain, cook, and crew. And then there were 10 scientists and uh, media people combined. So eight scientists and uh, two folks from a um, uh, local TV news station. And uh, among the scientists, uh, there was uh, myself and Dr. Milbrandt from the Sanibel Captiva Conservation Foundation. So we were the PhDs, but we actually were sitting back and having the graduate and undergraduate students do uh, a lot of the work. So um, the team was really led by a lot of the students. And that was one of the great things about it to see them go from being these undergraduate students that I remembered just learning the basics to really being able to lead this big sampling effort and, and keep it all organized. And I just was very impressed and, and proud to be part of that team. So like a serious research effort, but also a learning event for, for you know, graduate students and students. Yeah, it was sort of a sink or swim event. You know, huh. we had a limited amount of time to get that cruise organized. And this was literally thousands of sample bottles and labels, uh, so many different water quality parameters that we were testing, equipment that had to be sourced and placed on the boat. Uh, so the logistical task of organizing this was humongous. But the students and uh, Vester Marine Station staff people really rallied and got it got it all together. And this is, um, I said FIO before which I'm not sure what that meant. This is FIU at Florida International University. It's their ship, right? Um, no, it's uh, one letter different, uh, but a completely different institution. So this is the Florida Institute of Oceanography. So I did have FIO right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, Florida Institute of Oceanography. Um, it's this uh, part of the Florida State University system. So any state university uh, is granted access to these research vessels that are based uh, in Tampa Bay at uh, University of South Florida, St. Petersburg. Understood. So uh, apologies for confusing that. So you talked about the samples you collected. Um, how does this physically work? Um, you know, Cole, describe, you know, do you do you pull up to a spot? Do you dip water? You know, explain it in, in just real simple terms that radio listeners can understand. Like, how do you collect samples? And then how do you process them for, for research purposes? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we had uh, a lot of different sites and most sites we collected similar things, but there were some sites where there were different things taken. So what I mean by that um, is, for example, at the sites that we usually do, the eight, um, we would go and there's this big machine called a CTD rosette. So imagine a bunch of capsules around a big circle. So they drop this down on a winch and then at each depth, they would pull it up and close these bottles. So you can get water samples from bottom, mid, top. So that was a big sort of mechanism around which we captured the water itself. They would pull that up on the boat. So that can capture like 20 or 30 or whatever samples it from was, that uh, It was 12, I believe, 12, 12 total. 12 at a shot from right. each Right, so we'd do okay. like, you know, three or four at a given depth. Um, and it's really important to get the, the full spectrum of the water column because you don't know what's sitting around the mid range, what's sitting around the bottom range, or what's just hanging out on the surface. So you want that full spectrum. Um, and then from there, you could pull from these bottles. And then an entire spectrum of different samples were taken. Chlorophyll was an important one, too. And that was something that was able to sort of pinpoint where we were at in the blooms when we did go through them, um, just as an indicator of phytoplankton, really small little things. Blooms that, meaning algae blooms of some kind? Uh, algae blooms of some kind, which showed afterwards to be actual red tide blooms. Yeah, so it was definitely very interesting. And um, outside of the water quality itself, uh, we were doing the, the AV data as well. 
So the stuff that um, I'm doing specifically for my project, that's what involved the diving. Um, so we'd go down and get uh, photo and video samples at the eight sites that we usually do. And yeah, like uh, like James said earlier, I mean, just completely changed, completely altered. I've read something that uh, that you'd said somewhere else, and you described it as like total chaos on the on the seafloor. Basically, yeah. is that you know just characterize what it was like down there? Right. So imagine a very dark night and even during the daytime that's what it was like down there because the water was so murky with uh, everything that was stirred up and blooming after the hurricane that we would get to the bottom and even if we were only 35 feet deep uh, it's still just there was just a bare glimmer of light and then the scene on the seafloor looked sort of like the moon there was this fine dust over everything similar to the mud that people were shoveling out of their garages on on Sanibel Island uh, but the seafloor was coated with uh, those uh, shuffled sediments as well. And there were some glimmers of life down there. We would see little fish and crabs crawling across this moonscape. But a lot of the environments that we'd been delighted to see all kinds of biodiversity in the first times that we visited them were really devastated by, I think, the combination of the physical disturbance of waves and scouring with just sort of a washing machine full of sand of sediment removal and and exchange was happening down there during the hurricane. And then this sort of after effects of having this dark curtain of, of murky water lying over the seabed also indirectly affected the bottom life. So they were the combined effect of the physical disturbance during the storm and then all of this sort of lack of light and, and chemical changes in the water after the storm had absolutely transformed the bottom. We'll get to the, well, no, let's stick with that. So what are the, um, the implications of that for the life on the bottom? Uh, is this something that's going to just be part of the cycle and it won't be a big deal? Or is this going to have some sort of, you know, domino effect that could impact the ecosystem, you know, otherwise? Well, a lot of the habitats that we were looking at out there are what they call hard bottom habitats, where there's some exposed limestone and organisms can attach and make sort of a little forest of life on the seabed. And those areas are really important as nurseries for young grouper, uh, juvenile crabs. They have some of the same values as the inshore habitats that we value like seagrass beds do. And so that we think now that those subsea nurseries are gone, we might not see such productive crops of the uh, crabs and fish that uh, we're interested in in this area. So you collect those water samples first. Do you Are you testing those on the boat? Or I don't know if you're supposed to call it a boat when it's that big on the ship. Or is that all about just, you know, categorizing it, keeping it straight, and then bringing it back to labs? Cole? So a large majority of it was... The latter, what you said, is basically categorizing and keeping it organized, putting it in the right places. Some of it needed to be frozen. Some of it was fine at room temp. But just making sure that the samples that were collected would be good by the time that we brought it back. You know, they had to be on the boat for a week, at least the ones we collected originally. So there wasn't a whole lot of processing on board. I think the only thing we did actually get readings for was chlorophyll, which is why I spoke about it earlier, because it was that that direct reading that was somewhat important. Um, So, yeah, I mean, a lot of it was just keeping it organized because, like James said, I mean, there was so much of it and and just making sure things didn't break. The uh, hatches were battened down, so to speak, because, I mean, you know, the the second night, I think it was the first or second night, we were in some pretty um, bad weather. So stuff was rocking back and forth and definitely heard some glass break a few times. But I, I believe all the samples made it fine and they're still being processed currently. 
so, Dr. Douglas, have you sorted through enough of that data to have a sense of, you know, what are the implications of Ian's landfall on water quality across this region of southwest Florida? Well, one of the types of data that we got on the cruise, we were able to uh, understand as we collected it. Uh, so we, in addition to the samples that we bottled up and took back that take some weeks or even months to fully process, we have some electronic sensors that can tell us things about the levels of uh, organic matter and algae in the water, levels of salinity and suspended sediments. And we could see from all those electronic readings from our sensors that the Gulf was uh, full of these light blocking components like algae, suspended uh, mud, and then uh, what we call colored dissolved organic matter or tannins, the sort of uh, tea and coffee stained water that comes from rivers on land. And we were seeing high levels of those things even quite far offshore, which is really abnormal. Uh, the, some of the levels of those chemicals that we saw in the Gulf were more similar to what we would normally see in an estuary or a marina really close to the sources of land-based pollution, and yet we were seeing that kind of dark water far offshore where it would normally be clear and blue. Um, we have a still growing, as I understand it, red tide event that's from about Collier County all the way up to Tampa Bay, I think, now. Um, is there a way to correlate that with you know, data uh, between the Ian event and what we're seeing offshore now? There is. So the connection is nutrients, right? So red tide is a photosynthetic organism that, like plants on land, it uh, depends on nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus. And the hurricane increased nutrient levels in the water, both through the massive amounts of runoff from the land and also by stirring up the seabed and bringing nutrients from deep waters and down beneath the mud up into the water column. So the combination of those two effects, the washing down of runoff and the stirring up of the seabed, the uh, nutrient data shows that the water column was just rife with nutrients. And so it was inevitable that some type of algae would take advantage of that and bloom. And we saw that the waters were green in some places with uh, green microscopic algae. But in some places, we also saw that typical burgundy wine color of the red tide beginning. And when we were sampling, it was just beginning. Uh, but since then, other data has indicated, uh, unfortunately, the red tide has really spread, as we were afraid it might. Um, not necessarily in terms of red tide, but do you have a sense of how long it might take for the system to return to something like normal? Like, I mean, is it the Gulf Stream that's moving water around? I mean, it seems like at some point everything will dissipate. Do you, is that a years-long thing? Is that a weeks, months-long thing? Here on the southwest coast of Florida, we have uh, a very different situation than they do on the east coast of Florida where the Gulf Stream breezes right past the coast and whisks away the pollution. Pollution here on the southwest Florida shelf tends to linger for a long time, months or years, uh, because we have shallow water hundreds of kilometers from shore and we don't have any big direct influence of the Gulf Stream to whisk our problems away. So it's going to be stewing out there for months, years perhaps. One of the goals of our research is to understand what happens to the 
pollution and, and runoff that uh, goes out there because we know it doesn't just disintegrate into nothingness. Mm. Some settles to the bottom, gets stirred back up again. And so we know from past years that sometimes we'll get a bad algae bloom the year after a hurricane and understanding the mechanisms of that. Where does the pollution go in the meantime and what brings it back a year later to cause these blooms? So I, I think that the current red tide might dissipate, but I don't think the legacy of Ian is past us yet. I, I think that it's, there's going to be more acts to this play. And another act to this play, I don't. I hope this is not something that I'm predicting, but you know, um, Lake Okeechobee is currently about two feet above historic norms. At some point, the Army Corps is going to have to start releasing water. In 2018 and part of 2019, after Irma, we had that horrible blue-green algae event all the way from the lake to the estuary. Are there concerns of something like that happening? There are absolutely concerns. Um, basically, any extra nutrients that we add to this stew out there uh, has the potential to exacerbate algae blooms. Uh, at the same time, though, we can't just uh, let uh, Lake Okeechobee overflow. Um, and uh, lowering levels of Oco Lake Okeechobee is important to help us absorb the impacts of whatever the next big rainfall or, or hurricane event is. So managers are really sweating bullets and, and working hard to try to figure out what's the least harmful thing to do with this water that's piling up in, in Lake Okeechobee. And there's likely to be impacts somewhere from the releases. Uh, how long will you, will you be sorting through this data from just from that one trip? Well, we're getting caught up on the data from the trip. Uh, my students and I are talking about having a, a mini symposium where we compare notes on what we saw pre and post uh, hurricane. But the, our original study looking at these um, areas of the seabed off of Lee and Collier County was designed to go for a year. So we'll be sampling every two months until next summer, uh, and we'll be able to see sort of a whole year cycle on the southwest Florida shelf with, of course, this big event of the hurricane happening in the middle of that cycle. So sometime next year, we'll probably have the full story of uh, what happened over the course of a year, uh, of course, with the big dramatic event being hopefully the only big dramatic event being Hurricane Ian. It's an interesting thing that scientists find, you know, a situation that scientists find themselves in is like Dr. Mike Parsons, we talk to him all the time about blue-green algae, but if there isn't a big event, he can't do his research. And so now you have this event that's happened that's going to give you data that will, you know, tell us something, right? Yeah, I, um, I wish that we'd been able to get a normal year. Yeah, a whole year had. before you had the event, right? right. You know, in uh, ecological studies, the holy grail is to do a before-after control impact study. So you want to study the system before you the impact. Before, during impact. Right. And, <laughs> and, and you also want to have a control site where there was no impact, right? Or, or a, a normal year to compare to. So uh, one of the, the challenges that we have here in Southwest Florida is finding sort of a, a clean baseline um, that's not affected by some environmental disaster or another. We also wish we could have a time machine to see what the Gulf was like uh, 100 or 200 years ago to know sort of what we've lost or what we should be aiming to restore as far as these seabed communities are concerned.
All right. Well, that is all the time we have, unfortunately. I want to thank my guests. Dr. James Douglas is an associate professor of marine science in the Department of Marine and Earth Sciences at FGCU. Dr. Douglas, thank you for coming in. We'll have to have you back as this research continues. Thank you. And Cole Tillman is a graduate student at the Water School at FGCU. Cole, thanks to you as well. It's been good talking to you. You can see photos from their research trip on our website, wgcu.org gcl. Our show today was produced by yours truly, our director, today is Richard Chinqui. Our social media coordinator is Tara Callaghan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM. We are NPR for Southwest Florida.